Thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. Did you hear that dig my dad did on the Israel trip with better hotels, better food? Like, what is he, Mr. Bougie now? Like, come on. If you're thinking about going to Israel with me, <clears throat> don't listen to my dad. It's, uh, I'm far better to travel with than him. So, no, Turkey will be a great trip, and, um, and we will be going to Israel, hopefully, hopefully soon. You might be wondering what's up with the glasses. I went to an eye doctor, and he told me that I had astigmatism, and I don't know what that means. And then he explained it to me, and I still don't know what it means, but he said... Pretty much you need to wear some, like, some like, glasses to help with eye strain just for a while and kind of see if it helps. Probably not going to wear them for very long, so I like, picked out the most silly-looking ones. And then I, I went home, and my, my wife, uh, she's like, what did you do? And she, she says that I look like a certain serial killer, um, but, but she's, <laughs> she's stuck with me now, so... It is what it is. And you're stuck with me, too, because here we are this weekend, and we're going to be in Hosea. You know, I have a, I have a love-hate relationship with baseball, and it's kind of like a baseball theme this summer, which is, which is fun, but I have a love-hate relationship with the sport. I love going to a ballpark. In fact, I went to a ballpark in Pittsburgh just a couple of weeks ago. We have the guy who leads the, the team, of Pittsburgh Pirates, in home runs. He goes to the bridge. And so he invited us out to go and go to a game and then go on the field with him afterward. And so it was a blast just, you know, being, being in a park, you know, maybe you go to Wrigley or, or whatever, you just sit outside, peanuts, all that. I love it. But baseball was the sport where I was placed on the B team. So I kind of hate it. And as a cocky teenager, that really bothered me because for private schools, which is not saying much, but for private schools, I was like all state in soccer and basketball. Public school, I was varsity. Like I won public t- tennis tournaments, dang it. Like don't put me on the B team. And so I was a sore loser. And in high school, I just quit baseball. I was like, I'm not going to do that. Don't put me on the B team. That's why I always kind of felt for these guys in the Bible that we call the minor prophets. Because there's the major prophets. If you know much about scripture, there's, like, there's the major prophets, which would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. They're considered like the big dogs, the A-team, the varsity, the major prophets. And then right at the end of the Old Testament, it feels like we've got the B-team right at the end of the Old Testament. The minor prophets. You know, they're the minor leagues. They're the guys that everyone just kind of skips over because they have weird names. Hosea, Obadiah, Habakkuk. You know, we, we run into those names. We're like, okay. Weird names, they're minors, so I'm probably not going to read their book. And they're the, they become the forgotten prophets. However, minor does not refer to their importance or their ability. You know what minor refers to? Actually, I think you're going to like this. Minor refers to their length. They're just shorter. They're not long-winded preachers like my dad. They get, they get straight to the point. A good way to think of it is the major prophets in the Old Testament wrote books, and the minor prophets wrote blogs. The minor prophets, they lived during a, during a time in Israel's history when the nation had kind of fallen away. People weren't doing very well. Uh, they were distracted. They were addicted. They were just messy. And the minor prophets stepped in, and they essentially blogged about how do you return back to God? And so if you're someone who's maybe you're not doing as well as you'd like spiritually, you're just not firing on all cylinders, or maybe you're distracted. Maybe you feel like you've fallen away from God, or maybe you feel like you've never really approached God. Maybe you've made some bad decisions. We don't have anybody in here like that, do we? Made some bad decisions at all? No, we're all there. And these minor prophets are for us. Plus, humor me for a second, but this, this is true. One day in the next life, I promise you this is gonna happen. 
Haggai is going to come up to you and say, hey, how'd you like my blog? And you're going to be so embarrassed if you didn't read it. So I feel a responsibility as one of your pastors to save you from that embarrassment. (laughs) This summer, we are majoring in the minors. We're starting with a guy named Hosea. Oh my goodness, out of the 12 minor prophets, this guy has the wildest story. Even if you grew up in church, I can almost guarantee you, you probably did not hear Hosea's full story as a child because it is not PG, it is not PC, but it is MP, minor prophet. And so we will jump into his somewhat, not somewhat, his explicit story. It's about to get a little awkward up in here, but I love those times. And we're going to do this together. Let's read Hosea's blog, shall we? Hosea chapter one is where we're going to be. It's page 751 in the Bibles and the chairs. Uh, so I know a lot of people use their phone, tablets to look up the Bible on there, which is great. Otherwise, we do have those paper Bibles in the, in the chairs. It's page 751 in those Bibles, but Hosea chapter one. About 10 years ago, this is before I had kids, I redid the bathroom in the house that we were in. I was a new homeowner, and I just kind of wanted to take a swing at you know, learning stuff. And so I tore out, one day, I tore out the whole bathroom, grabbed a sledgehammer with a couple buddies, and we just knocked, like we did way too much. Like we, we, we could see the basement floor. We ripped out the floor. We didn't even rip, need to rip out the floor. We ripped out the floor because it just looked fun to do. And so my wife came home and found out we didn't have a bathroom. It was probably the biggest fight we've ever had in our marriage, but that's another story for another time. But the demo was all fun. Love that. Now putting it back together, I had no idea what I was doing. So what I ended up doing is I ended up calling my dad quite a bit to come over in the evenings to help teach me how to redo this bathroom because I had no idea what he was doing. There was one evening where he was teaching me how to frame things out, and he was, this is a point where he was holding this board, and I was supposed to drill through it, and it was like this tricky angle. It was like, kind of like toenailing it, but, but with a, but with a um, you know, screw, and I didn't have the best grip on my drill, and my drill slipped, and the drill bit went right into my dad's hand. My heart sank into my stomach. Like my dad quickly grabs his hand. He's wincing in pain. He's trying to stop the bleeding. I'm standing there with the drill just like frozen. You know, I was like, I, I can't believe I did, I did that. And I can't believe he didn't curse. Like he, not even one curse word in that moment. And more than that, I couldn't believe he wasn't like chewing me out or angry at me. Like his pain was my fault. I made a bad decision to trust my grip, but he's not like chewing me out and he's not even correcting me for it. And I remember as he's trying to stop the bleeding, I'm picking up his tools because I'm thinking, okay, surely he doesn't want to like, if he doesn't need to go to the ER, he definitely doesn't want to stick around here. Like I wouldn't want to be around me. Like he's gone and I don't want to continue. I feel terrible. But he insisted on staying. And that evening as he was getting in the car, bandaged and all, I was beside myself. Like I, I knew I had a great dad, but I would have been ticked. And it wasn't until that I had kids that I understood what just happened that that night. The other day I was wrestling with my youngest. She's five. Her name's Reese. And she's just, she's nuts. If you ever met her, you know, she's just, she's just nuts. And she loves wrestling. And there's a lot of times we just do these surprise attacks, you know, she just start wrestling me. And, and so we're having fun and wrestling around when she grabs a coffee cup off the table and smacks me in the face with it. Now <laughs> she didn't do it. She didn't do it to be mean. She was just, you know, it's just what she does. She escalates everything. And so suddenly, you know, the wrestling match had just stopped. And I grabbed my eye. You know, I just got sucker punched by a coffee cup in the eye. Maybe that's why I need glasses now. Who knows? And my daughter starts crying, you know, tries to, tries to run from me and hide. Like, she felt what I felt when I was holding the drill. Like, I can't believe I did that. You know, I, I don't want to face dad. 
And as I'm icing my eye, I thought, if this had been anyone else, I would have fought back. Like even Jordan, who I love very dearly, if he would have done that to me, I'd be ticked. Why am I not angry at this little monster? Because she's my daughter. And I'm always going to view her that way, through that lens. Like even when she messes up, and, and she does, and she will, even when she hurts me, even when she needs discipline, which there's going to be those times, I'm still going to view her very differently than I view everybody else. I'm going to interact with her very differently than I interact with anybody else because she's my daughter. And I will always see her that way. See, most, if not all of us, struggle to remember that God views you that way. Like me holding the drill, just like frozen, not wanting to continue working with my dad. Like my daughter crying and trying to run away from me. Many of us view God that way. That's why some of us really struggle to worship this morning. I can't raise my hands and worship. I feel like a hypocrite. I don't feel like singing because God knows what I've been into. He knows where these hands have been, so I'm just going to keep them in my pockets this week. It's a bad week. Ah, I better not go to church. And if I do, just kind of go through the motions here, but kind of stay at a distance because I kind of want to run. You ever feel that way with God? Because I do. We fail to realize in that moment, we fail to realize something so fundamental to our faith. That if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you are God's very child. And that's how he first sees you. I believe it was Brennan Manning who wrote, one of the most difficult parts of following Jesus is believing his great depth of his love. It's us believing just how much he loves us is one of the hardest things to do as we follow Jesus. And it takes a guy named Hosea to really paint this picture of a love that is a scandalous picture in a way. It's an awkward picture, but it communicates the deep love that God has for us. And that's what we're gonna jump into today. Hosea chapter one. Let me, let me pray and we'll just jump right into this. God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the kind of dad that you are. And some of us really struggle to see you for who you are because some of us have had terrible dads that just didn't model good fatherhood. But Father, we thank you that you are a great father, that you are a good father. Not just a father, but in scripture, you, you tell us to call you dad. The creator of this universe, you want us to call you dad. And we thank you for that reality. And God, I know that you have something in this text for all of us. There is something very, very specific, hearts that you want to grab this morning, and I believe you will. I ask that we tune out all distractions and really zero in on what you have for us right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the lens of scripture zooms in on Hosea chapter one, we find ourselves in northern Israel. It is 750 BC. The economy is extremely strong in 750 BC in these hill towns of northern Israel. Down one of the side streets in a humble little limestone block home, a young single guy slowly begins to awake. He just graduated out of school. He rubs his face trying to wake up, but he stays in bed just staring at his thatched ceiling. For months, he's been trying to figure out his next move after graduation. He's trained in the Bible and Torah school. He was one of the best communicators. His family and his, his teachers had figured that he would become a rabbi, and that sounds great to him, but something else is on his mind this morning. It's like less and less people are showing up for worship. 
His neighbors, his old friends, they all seem to be just kind of fading away from God. They attend worship less and less. As such, there's less and less interest in God's word. There's less and less interest in Torah. People don't want to worship or serve. It just feels like more and more people are walking away, distracted by success and distracted by opportunity. To make matters worse, in verse 1, if you have your Bibles in front of you, Hosea 1, verse 1, we see the name Jeroboam right there. King Jeroboam created, he was a terrible king in Israel during this time. He was taking people away from God. And King Jeroboam created these two golden calves and placed them in temples for people to worship. Now by calves, I mean baby cows, not legs. Some of you were thinking of like, you know, the Christmas story, you know, the, the lamp. Not, not calves like that, but like baby cows. And baby cows during this time, they, they symbolize success. And so like literally and figuratively, people were worshiping success. Very, very, very much like today. And this is where Hosea really brings us in. Verse two, it says, The Lord said to Hosea, go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. You know, Hold on. <laughs> Isn't the Bible? Like, some of you are like taking your Bible right now. It's like, this is a long-haired, homeless-looking preacher on something right now? Like, no, there it is. Like, verse two, look at that. It's there. How about this for an assignment? I imagine all of Hosea's you know, classmates, fellow classmates are being assigned different synagogues to teach in and t- temple duties. And they're all excited to wear the, the formal rabbi garb because it, that, got, that got you respect. You know, their families are bragging. You know, my son, he's, he's one of the leaders of the biggest gatherings in northern Israel. Uh, and they ask Hosea's mom, well, what's Hosea up to? You know, she doesn't want to talk about it. Where's your son's assignment? Oh, well, he's engaged to a girl from the red light district. Like, oh, uh, that's awkward. This is embarrassing for Hosea, for his family. Like, this feels shameful. And don't, some Christians try to do this. Don't try to Lysol this verse. This isn't like some cute assignment, you know, go save a girl from prostitution, redeem her, and she'll renounce her ways, and she'll make a great mom and a great wife. Not at all. She will marry Hosea, but she will always feel this tug to be used by other men. She will relapse back to the mud with piggish men. Why is God asking a man of God, to do this. Well, God says, for the land commits great whoredom for forsaking the Lord. Now, don't miss this, because sometimes people read this and they think, oh, so why is God punishing Hosea for the sins of the people? That's not what's happening at all. Instead, God is painting this very vivid picture, a very scandalous picture. Like us, Israel is forgetting the fundamental motivator of their faith, this wild love of God. And so God decides, I'm gonna paint what my love looks like to you. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse three, we'll continue on with the story. It says, so Hosea went and took Gomer. Her name is Gomer. Kind of makes it worse in my opinion because it's not a very sexy name. I'm, I'm a big Andy Griffith fan. I watch Andy Griffith just about every night. And so when I think of Gomer, I think of this guy right here, you know, the, the station attendant. It's like, go marry Gomer, the guy with the weird voice, Gomer. That's not it, but her name is Gomer. You imagine the wedding invites they are sent out and the rumors just kind of start spreading like wildfire. Hosea, the church boy, the good Jewish boy, you know, the clean kid, is marrying the girl that you warn your sons about. And then you imagine the wedding because the the wedding took place. Imagine the clashing of families and friends. Imagine in the one side of the room, there's mama in the front dressed all nice. Behind her, the seats are all filled with upstanding, clean-cut, sharp-looking people. And then on the other side of the room, literally will have pimps, former lovers, fellow co-workers, ladies of the night. 
This is shocking. This is scandalous. This is awkward. Continues on, it says, and she conceived and bore him a son. And so for the first few years, things seem fine. Sometimes great, like they have a boy and then actually they have a little baby girl and then they have another boy. So they have three kids. And sure, like any family, the issues are popping up, but they're not a hot mess that you would think. Until one morning. One morning, Hosea wakes up and he reaches over for Gomer and she's not in bed. She must've gotten up early. So he heads to the kitchen and she's not there. That's kind of odd. He looks out into the courtyard Water jars are still sitting there. She didn't get water. So he feeds the kids breakfast and then heads to the marketplace. She's not there either. And she doesn't come home that night or the next night or the next. And as the days wear on, the embarrassment sets in. Like he is a well-known preacher who is now a single dad of three kids and people are all talking. Oh, we knew this was gonna happen when he married her. His head hits the pillow at night and he stares back at that thatched ceiling thinking, well, what now? I'm supposed to be this beacon of hope to God's people, and I can't even keep my wife at home. The scripture doesn't really talk about what happened immediately after that, but I'm, I'm sure there were some long, dark nights trying to hide the crying from little kids. This is embarrassing. Trying to fend off those people in town who want to keep those rumors going. In chapter three is where we pick up the story. The heart-wrenching isn't over. It seems to only get worse. Verse one of chapter three. So chapter two is like this, this sermon, so to speak. And then chapter three, it picks up the narrative, which is where we'll pick it up. Verse, chapter three, verse one, it says, and the Lord said to, to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Oh, hold on. Whoa. You want me to go find her? I'm doing all I can to keep things afloat. I'm trying to raise three little ones on my own. I'm trying to preach these sermons that you put on my heart for your people. And she left me. And this wasn't my idea, God. This was yours. All this pain I'm going through. You want me to go find her and you want me to go love her? Why? God says, as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. Because Hosea, I'm painting a picture. Just as you're hurting seeing your wife wander away, so I'm hurting seeing my people wander away. Hosea, what you're feeling right now is how I feel all the time. Like, can we just sit in that for a second? In our sin, in our distraction, as we choose money, as we choose sports, as we choose titles, as we choose relationships over him, this is not nothing to God. He really feels that deeply. He feels cheated on. We're choosing something over him, and it wrecks him. This is the picture that God is painting. Sin is not small. It's us choosing something over him, and we're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it all the time. And how often do we fail to realize that breaks the very heart of God? The reality of God Almighty feeling pain over your sin is proof that he loves you. Maybe that feels backward because sometimes we think, you know, well, we sin and so God is angry, which, yeah, God does get angry. So we think God is just angry at us. No, that's actually proof that God loves you because a heart can only break over that which it actually loves. I'm gonna sound like really terrible for a second, but just... Let me illustrate it this way. The other day, I was, on a, I was on a subway, and in the car that I was in, I saw this homeless lady. She was strung out, uh, sitting in her own excrement, and it was, it was sad. Like, I wish I, I could have helped her. And again, again, maybe this seems awful to say, but as sad as that scene was, it did not break my heart. 
But if that would have been my daughter, that would have wrecked me. I would have picked her up, mess and all, with tears streaming down my face. I would have carried her home. I would have done everything in my power to heal her because that's my daughter. And my heart would break. This is the message of Hosea. Nasty mess or not, you are not some no-name to God. God's heart breaks over you because you are so deeply loved by the God of this universe. This is the picture that he wants Hosea to paint. But he's not done painting the picture. So he, he tells Hosea, he says, go find her. Go, go get her. Chase her, be relentless, Hosea. Go after her, just like my love for my people. And you think about that. What does that search look like? Where does Hosea have to go to find his wife who went back to being, as scripture calls it, sorry, no emails, please, it's in scripture, going back to being a whore? Where does he have to find her? This preacher walks into areas that we shield our kids' eyes from, those dark alleyways only the anonymous kind of creep through. And there's Hosea, a well-known preacher, leaving his home to head into the dirtiest of areas, into a world that he doesn't belong, to associate with people that men like him don't associate with. Does that remind you of someone else in history? Jesus left his home to head into the dirtiest of areas into a world that he doesn't belong to associate with people a perfect God shouldn't have to associate with. God says, go, go into the red light district, Hosea. Find your wife, the mother of your children who is right now sleeping with another man. Go find her and go love her again. And I'm sure to find her, he had to ask some guys who took part in the prostitution industry, maybe even sleeping with her. Like, hey, uh, I don't really know how to say this, but like, have you seen my wife? Like brown hair, yay tall. Oh, she's your wife? I'm sorry, man. I didn't know she was married. I saw her a couple days ago over there. It's like, my bad. Oh, okay, well, I still want to find her, though. You know, you know where she is now? I asked my buddy. He was with her last. Like, this, is, this is heart-wrenching. This is like gut churning search to find the mother of his children. And finally, the search is over. He finds her in verse two, chapter three, if you have your Bibles in front of you. Hosea finds his wife where? Being sold. She's on the selling block. She's being sold by, during this time, an ancient pimp to the highest bidding pig. And what does that bidding look like? She's sitting up there on the block. She's been thoroughly used. She's bound. She's a mess. Men are checking her out, deciding if she's worth it or not. And there stands Hosea, the well-known preacher, the father of her children. I don't think she can look him in the eye. I didn't think he would come here. Why would he pursue me? Why would he chase me? Why does he still want me? So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethage of barley. Hosea, hold on a second. She's yours. She's yours. She's already yours. She's your wife. You are buying something that is already yours. Does it remind you of someone else in history? Psalm 24, 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Yet 2,000 years ago, a beaten and bloody Jesus hung on the cross to pay the price for you and I when, according to Psalms, we're already is. Just we walked away. See, throughout the years, people have, have read Hosea and have been very confused because it just seems like a, a book that's just like crazy, and it is crazy. But we'll read through the book, and then they misapply it. Many have read this blog and have kind of concluded, well, we should be like Hosea. In fact, I've heard people, you know, they come in for like marriage counseling, and I've heard people excusing their, their spouse's continual 
unfaithfulness by saying, well, maybe I'm just supposed to be Hosea and take it, you know, kind of stay with them and, and let them repeat their, their cheating. No, no, no. Hosea is not a book on marriage counseling. The point is not you are Hosea. That's not the point. The point is you're Gomer. I'm Gomer. That's the point of the block. I'm Gomer. We're not Hosea. Jesus is Hosea. We're Gomer. We ran off. We got dirty. We made a mess. We heard Jesus. We abandoned God's love. It's a serious mistake to read Hosea and think, oh, I need to be Hosea. No, no, you're not that great. You're Gomer. You're Gomer. This blog wasn't written to tell you how to be like Hosea. This blog was written to show you God's great love for you as we are Gomer. See, the gospel is messy. His love is scandalous. And a major part of our faith is embracing the depth of his great love for you and I. Some of us have been approaching God like me standing with the drill. To go like, hey, he's ticked. He's gone. He doesn't want to do this anymore. I don't blame him. I just hurt him. Some of us have spiritually been like my daughter, smacking me in the eye with a cop. Spiritually, you just, yeah, you just want to run. You don't do this anymore. Hey, you come to church, but you just kind of stay at a distance because you don't deserve this. You don't deserve him. And yeah, sure, that's true, absolutely. But as humble as that sounds, the reality is, is you've bought the lie that God's love is cheap and conditional. There's a part of you still listening to the enemy, thinking you gotta do better. You've gotta do better before you go back. You don't deserve God right now, so maybe live clean for a little while before returning to him. And it takes Hosea to say, stop it. That's a lie from the pit of hell. God is outside of time. So what does this matter as far as living clean for a little while? God's outside of time. Don't get clean for a while before returning. Like, return now. Just stop the nonsense and return back to God. God is more mad about you than he is at you. Yeah, you ran. You got messy. And you hurt him. And you cheated. But don't reject his forgiveness as a way of punishing yourself. That only hurts him further. God is more mad about you than he is at you. And that's a, that makes a big difference. Well, after this, Hosea preaches a sermon to, to the people. Verse 4, if you have your Bibles in front of you, it says, for the, he says, for the children of Israel, again, this is part of his sermon. He says, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince or without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gifts. Really what he's saying here is he's like, he's, he's, essentially what Hosea is saying is he's saying, we're on probation right now. We're not gonna have a king. We're not going to have a prince. Uh, we're not gonna have sacrifice. Like right now, we're kind of grounded, so to speak. And then verse five, he says, but after the grounding, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and they shall, they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the later days, in the latter days. The people shall fear the Lord because of his vengeance. No, no, no. Because of his might. No, no, he has that. The people shall fear the Lord because of his goodness. Hosea is saying the day is coming when we won't first see God as a judge. Now, he is a judge. But the day is coming when people will first see him as a dad who loves his kids. Sure, a good dad disciplines, a good dad gets angry at times, but what makes a good dad good is he first sees his kids as his kids. And this is how God sees you. Don't ever forget that. See, Romans 2.4 says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, not the anger of God. Sometimes religion, bad religion, can just kind of twist this, and I'm gonna make you feel very 
you know, guilty so that you return back to being godly. God says, no, 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 hold on. It is my goodness, it is my kindness that leads you to change your ways because it's all out of love. It's the goodness of God that leads us to change. It's the enemy that tells you, hey, you don't deserve this, which is true. But then they take it further. God only tolerates you. So you've got to live clean a little while before approaching him because he's just mad at you. Don't buy that for a second, that the blood of Jesus Christ is that cheap. His blood is enough. Hosea represents God. You and I are Gomer, and God won't stop. He will pursue you, mess and all, because he, first and foremost, wants you as his child. And that changes everything. A few lessons from the prophet Hosea. Number one, God's love is stronger than your sin. For Jesus followers in here, maybe I'm the only one, but you ever feel like you ruined your relationship with God? You ever feel that? Like, okay, I was offered something amazing, a relationship with God, and then I just kind of ruined it because you know, I keep doing that one thing. I keep on falling. And so, all right, yeah, I know maybe God still loves me somewhere, but like for the most part, he's just kind of frustrated. So I'm gonna come into church, you know, try to open my Bible, try to pray here and there, but you have this nagging belief that God somehow is just kind of tolerating you, like at best, he almost regrets saving you because you keep on falling, you kind of ruined what you had. Listen, you are not great enough to ruin your relationship with God. You're just not that great. Your standing before God has everything to do with what he did, not what you do or have done. It's the enemy trying to convince you that your past mistakes are stronger than the great love of the almighty God. Don't believe that lie for a second. Your failure could never be greater than God's success. You're just not that great enough to ruin it. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance and leads us to change. And that is a fundamental part of our faith. So often forgotten, especially when we feel shame. And by the way, before we move on to the second point, let me just say this. God is not waiting to love a better version of you. And sometimes we operate that way. I just need to get a little bit better so you know, God will love me a little bit more. No, that's, never, that's not true. God loved you in the middle of your mess that haunts you. And God's love is greater than those mistakes that haunt you. Number two, God's forgiveness of us means more than our forgiveness of ourselves. Here's what I mean by this. So the other day I was sitting on a, on a patio, on my patio with a, with a woman who has a crazy story. God pulled her out of a, like a, a life of addiction and, and um, sexual mess. She was formerly identified as a lesbian. Now she identifies with Jesus Christ. She's just this amazing woman. Um, but she's become almost part of our, our family my family, like my girls kind of see her as an aunt. But like us, she has, she has her struggles and she has these pulls, just like all of us. And she has these hauntings of the past and, and she struggles to really listen to them. And she made this statement that I've heard so often. In fact, I've said it myself, but she said, Junior, I know God forgives me because it's in scripture. I just can't forgive myself. You ever say that? You ever hear that? Let's think about that for a second. What does that mean? I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. That means that there's God's forgiveness, which is great, and it's promised to us in Scripture, but then there's this higher level of forgiveness that I have not achieved yet. My forgiveness that I haven't reached yet. So what are we doing? We're unintentionally putting ourselves above God and overriding his forgiveness. Now, I get the feeling, I get the statement, I've made it before, but in reality, what we're saying is that my forgiveness is above God's forgiveness. No, God's forgiveness is of the highest form. And our forgiveness submits to his forgiveness. If he forgives, so do we. 
Then number three, last point, God's love changes everything. And maybe this seems like super elementary, but it can't go unsaid. God's love changes everything. It's why the enemy's greatest effort is to convince you his love does not reach as far as you've been. Because, you, because when you wrestle with the love of God and you actually embrace the love of God, nothing is ever the same. Nothing is ever the same. The love of God is the, is the lens through which we live. Every day we awake, we awaken the love of God. Every relationship we engage in, every venture we take, it's all lived through the reality that we are, li- we are loved and we are, we are cherished by, and we are pursued by God Almighty. That changes every single thing. So one of the most difficult parts of our walk with God is realizing how much he loves us. Because the more we realize we are loved, the more we take his invitation to come closer to him, to walk further, and to sacrifice more. See, Christianity isn't about willing yourself into better standing with God. It's not Christianity. We can't make God love us more. Christianity isn't about picking yourself up by your bootstraps and earning his love. That's not love. No, Christianity is about taking an invite into the love of God. Now, don't get me wrong. We surrender. God calls us to holiness. There is fruit of the spirit. There's evidence of us being in the faith. You look at Jesus' sermons. Jesus did a lot of what people call behavior modification, which is not evil. You look at Jesus told us how to be holy. This is how you live holy. We're called to live holy, to take up our cross, to follow Jesus. But let's not forget, this is our motivator. We are cherished. We are pursued. And God obsessively loves you. And it's that truth that calls us deeper and deeper into God. One of the favorite stories my kids like to hear they asked me to tell it to them all the time. Um, it happened when I was nine years old. And maybe you've heard this story before. But uh, my dad and my uncle took me and my cousin to the Boundary Waters for a couple weeks when, when I was nine. The Boundary Waters, I don't know if you've ever been there before. It's beautiful. It's this, this series of like, lakes and currents between Minnesota and Canada. And this beautiful, untouched area with wildlife and islands and no people and no bathrooms and no stores. Like You ate what you packed and, and we had water purifiers to like, drink out of the river. And the plan was to put everything we had in a canoe and then just go down the river for who knows how, not for a week, but we don't know where we were really going, just like float down the river for, for a week. And I was looking forward to this trip because I was nine. I was thinking like, I don't think it was true, but I was thinking, I think this is like the test of my manhood. I think like after this trip, you know, I'm a man. And so like I bought a knife with like a leather holster. I don't think you can do this anymore, but it was Wisconsin in the 90s. And so I had like this leather holster with a dagger, you know, I'd walk around with. I just, I was ready for this trip to be a man. We drive up to northern Minnesota in my uncle's Jeep, and we get up there. It's late afternoon when we arrive in the park, and so we have to make camp, like, very quickly. So we unload the Jeep, and my dad and my uncle, they tell me and my cousin, which were about the same age, they, they say, why don't you take these backpacks and go down the, this trail down to the water. Just keep walking until you get to the water and then drop your packs there. And we'll follow you with canoes, but we gotta get all the canoes and stuff off the, off the Jeep. And so me and my cousin, we, we set off down the path. We walk about a half mile and, and there's this fork in the trail. And one, one way led into a swamp. And so we're like, all right, well, let's take the other way. And so we walked and we talked and we walked and we talked and we walked and we walked and we walked. And after a while, we stopped. And my cousin, he said to me, he said, I don't think we were supposed to walk this far. Uh, maybe we should turn back. And I told him, I said, hey, man, this is our test, okay? Like, we're men. 
Uh, we were told to walk to the water. This is what we're going to do. We're going to walk to the water. He's like, well, Junior, it's going to get dark soon. It's like, so let's walk faster. So we just kept walking. <laughs> Finally, we got, we, we got to the edge of the water. It was a few miles. We sat down. We started skipping rocks. You know, proud that we carried the, the, the bags, you know, a few miles. And, and then it got dark. And then we got scared. And we started to worry. Our dads hadn't come yet. And so we left our bags at shore. We started walking into the, into the dark, deep woods again. The problem was, is we were out in the middle of nowhere. It's pitch dark and wildlife all around. So we're hearing like howling. We're hearing coyotes yipping. I mean, there's all of that. There's bears in this area. And so we started running. Well, while all of that was happening, my dad and my uncle, they had taken the canoes off the, the Jeep and they had gotten to that fork in the trail, but they went toward the swamp, amateurs. And so... <laughs> They realized that, you know, they were at the wrong trail, that they told their sons to go down the wrong trail. So they headed back to the Jeep and they looked at a map and they realized, oh, this wasn't 300 yards that we sent our boys down. This is a few miles into the deep woods. So my dad and my uncle are calling for us. We can't hear them. My dad goes to the ranger station. Rangers are getting ready to comb the area. There's talk of getting a helicopter up in the air, all of that. Our dads are running through the woods, yelling our names. We had no idea. Like we're too far into the woods to hear any of that. Finally, through the pitch black dark, we reached the Jeep, and my dad was at the ranger station at the time, but my, my uncle was there, and he was panicked, and he was visibly upset. I've never seen my uncle upset. Like, he, he was the most even-keeled guy, and so I started to worry when I saw him upset, because I was thinking, my dad's going to kill me. If my uncle's upset, my dad's going to kill me, and so we got in the car to go to the ranger station. I did not want to go to the ranger station. I did not want to face my dad, thinking, I'm in trouble. I'm, I'm, he's going to take us home. Uh, he's ticked. You know, I've ruined the trip. My dad came out of the ranger station and he started walking toward me and I started crying. Like, I'm so sorry, dad. I wanted to prove that I was a man. And in mid-sentence, my dad scoops me up and gives me the biggest hug that I've ever gotten. And he whispers in my ear, I love you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad I have you. As a son, I never forgot those words. Because in that moment, that's what I needed to hear from dad. In this moment, I think that's what you need to hear from yours. I know you wandered off. You fell. You messed up. And in some ways, you're on the auction block. The enemy has you tied down. And the enemy's just, the addictions are just bidding on you. And yeah, there's consequences. There's fire to walk through and all of that. But don't you forget, our dad is more mad about us than he is at us. And regardless of how much we've broken his heart, it'll only break his heart more if we keep on running. God doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't even just like you. Scripture says that he so loves you. He's mad about you. He's been in this all-out pursuit of you. And my prayer going into this weekend is that pursuit culminates right here. I tell you, with arms open wide, God says to you, I love you. I want you. I'll be so glad if I have you. The question is, is will you embrace him? Because it's that love that drives us to repentance. And it's that love that leads us to worship. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.